Uh, the last couple of years have been tough for lots of people at church. Uh, just stop and have a look around. Uh, look at some of the things and, and think about what you have known in the last couple of years for some of the people here. There's been sickness uh, and unemployment, uh, death of family members, major surgery, pressures in relationships or study or finances. They're difficult situations without any simple answers. They're things that have caused us to worry and maybe even to doubt God's plan. When we go through these sorts of times, it's easy to have that, that nagging doubt that says, surely it's not meant to be like this. Surely for Christians, things should be a little bit easier. Doesn't God guarantee things will be better? And it's even more of a nagging doubt when you're actually suffering because you're a Christian. Every day, our Christian brothers and sisters in the Middle East and Africa and plenty of countries in Asia are being martyred or imprisoned or beaten. We hear those things and we wonder, surely there's got to be some benefits for being a Christian. If Jesus really is King of Kings, if God's kingdom has come, if he really does rule over every authority in heaven and on earth, then why don't we see some more of that victory? Now, they're the sorts of doubts that John the Baptist is having here in Matthew 11. He's stuck in prison, and in verse 3, he sends his disciples to Jesus with the question, are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? In other words, have I made a big mistake? Have I backed the wrong horse? Back in chapter 3, he was talking up Jesus to everybody. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. And John had been reading prophecies like Isaiah chapter 4, where God promised judgment and justice for the wicked. And he knew Jesus was the one who'd make it happen. He says this about Jesus in verse 11 of chapter 3. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He'll baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he'll clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, Jesus was coming with God's judgement fire. He was going to set wrongs right. That's what the coming of the kingdom of heaven means for John. And he can't wait. Problem is, now he's stuck in prison for standing up for what's right. Uh, You can read the details in Matthew chapter 14. Uh, He's arrested by the local governor, Herod Antipas, the same Herod who later sits in judgment of Jesus. He's a prince, building palaces, wearing fancy clothes, His logo on his coins is a a reed waving in the wind, a rush waving in the wind. He's the complete opposite of John. When the uh, the two clash, when when Herod Herod marries his own niece, who had been married to Herod's brother, it's straight out of a soap opera, like Days of Our Lives. And so John rebukes Herod and says, you shouldn't do it. Herod says... I'm not interested. And he throws him in jail. And what's more, his ambitious new wife wants him dead for daring to speak against their lifestyle choices, for showing a lack of tolerance 
And so John's stuck in prison. He's done the right thing. He's stood up for justice. And look where it's got him. He's done it all because he thinks he's preparing the way for Jesus. Maybe he's expecting Jesus to come storming in behind him. Jesus is going to bring some justice and right some wrongs. But there's a problem. Jesus arrives, he begins his public ministry, and the news John's hearing in prison isn't quite what he's expecting. And he hears about all the things Jesus was doing, the works of the Messiah. He's hearing about the healings and the miracles and the crowds, and he's hearing about children and parties. And he wants to say, Where's the fire? Where's the justice? Because he was expecting a whole different type of works. And so that's the question John's disciples bring Jesus, wondering if perhaps they need to wait for someone else, that, that maybe Jesus is the gentleman and that there's a hard man who's going to come after him. Some Jews read all the prophecies and they, they put them into two groups and thought maybe there were two messiahs who were going to come. And so Jesus sends, the word, sends a message back and he responds with some prophecies of Isaiah of his own. He's got a message for John. He says, verse 4, Go back and report to John what you hear and see, that the blind, verse 5, receive their sight, that the lame walk, that, that those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, good news is preached to the poor. It's a whole series of quotes from Isaiah chapter 35 uh, with a sprinkling of Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 61 thrown in as well. In other words, he's saying to John, why are you so surprised at all the good news? It's not unexpected. It's all part of the plan. It's back there in Isaiah. Those are the works of the Messiah too. And it all says something about who Jesus is. He may not be punishing the Romans the way John wants, but he's preaching to the poor. He's binding up broken hearts. He's restoring the blind. And as Jesus quotes Isaiah 35, John's mind should go back there and he should read it with fresh eyes. Chapter 35 of Isaiah begins with a promise from God. John's got this bit right. Don't fear, your God will come with vengeance and divine retribution he will come to save you. That's the bit John loved. But he stopped reading. He didn't go on and read verse 5 of Isaiah 35. Keep reading, says Jesus, because verse 5 goes on to say, right alongside God's judgment of the wicked, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the lame will leap, the deaf will hear. Jesus says, tell John, you're seeing the joyful bit now and you'll just have to trust me for the judgment bit. You just have to trust me for the judgment bit. And you can tell John, verse 6, Matthew 11, blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me. In other words, tell John to stick with it until the end. Tell him to persevere. Tell him to keep trusting, even if it doesn't look like I'm storming his prison cell and overturning his personal injustice. And so I guess that's a word for us today in our various difficulties to stick with it, to keep going when life is more tears than laughter. Uh, 
We're blessed if we stick with it and keep trusting Jesus. That's what Jesus says. He is true, he is real, he is the Messiah, he has won the victory and one day we'll see it completely, we'll see all of it. We'll see the justice as well as the joy. So stick with it and you'll be blessed if you do, says Jesus. Well, John's disciples turn to go and Jesus turns to the crowd because perhaps they've got the same sorts of questions as well, the same sorts of expectations about what the Messiah is going to be like and maybe they've been looking to John and, well, things haven't turned out quite so well for John or quite the way John has described. They'd gone out into the desert to hear John because he was like a breath of fresh air to everybody else who'd been around before. He was promising a fresh start. He was promising the complete opposite of Herod's political game playing. As Jesus describes him, John is the politically incorrect wild man. He's the Bob Catter or the Pauline Hanson of the first century uh, to Herod's uh, sensible Scott Morrison or John Howard perhaps. And Jesus said to the crowd, it's no wonder Herod's not impressed with John and John's ended up in prison. Uh, You went to John in the wilderness exactly because he was this wild man. Exactly because he was calling for repentance and a change. So don't be surprised when he meets opposition. What did you go out into the desert to see? Says Jesus, a reed swayed by the wind. Someone whose position changes with public opinion? That's a politician. That's Herod. Certainly not John. John tells it like he sees it. What did you go out to see, says Jesus? It's not another Herod. Verse 8, it's no man dressed in fine clothes. If you want that, look in Herod's palace. What you went out to see was a prophet, someone who speaks the truth, whatever the consequences. But also more than a prophet, verse 10, the very one Malachi prophesied about who'd prepare the way for the Lord, the one who was going to sweep the house clean. So don't be surprised that he's facing opposition, which is the sense of those strange words in verse 12. Uh, your, Your pew Bibles puts it like this, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. That last word can can also be translated, um, forceful men snatch it away, snatch the kingdom away. It's exactly the same word Jesus uses later in the parable of the sower when he describes the birds who come and snatch away the seed. And I think that helps us make sense of it. Jesus is saying, don't be surprised that John is doing it tough. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully pressing ahead. The prophets and John and now Jesus. It's been pushing back the opposition, so don't be surprised when the opposition pushes back. Forceful men, just like Herod, are snatching at the kingdom. There's a battle going on. That's why John's in prison. That's why Jesus will soon face the same opposition. That's why Muslims are killing Christians and knocking down their churches and why communist governments are putting pastors in prison. There's a battle going on. And Jesus' challenge to the crowd 
goes to us as well. Verse 14, John is the new Elijah to come, the final prophet. All the prophets have been preaching the same message, repent, turn back to God, and now John has joined that same chorus. Are you going to listen to him? Repent, he says. Jesus said, if you've got ears, listen up. Repent, the kingdom of God's here. And he turns to the crowd because in the end it's not just Herod Antipas who's the problem. It's not just the teachers of the law, it's, it's everyone. Everyone's part of the problem. We all sin. We all push against God's kingdom as God tries to invade our lives. We all want to cling to self-centeredness and self-rule. And so Jesus turns from John and Herod to the crowd, to that fickle, hard-to-please, easily distracted crowd, the whole generation who need to hear John's message, the message to repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. It's Jesus' message too. And so Jesus says to the crowd, what can I compare this generation to? You can't make up your mind. You're like the wife whose husband moves the sofa to one spot, but then she's not sure she likes it there, so it has to go somewhere else, and then finally it's better back where it started. He says, you're like that. Verse 16, he says, imagine we're a bunch of kids playing. Uh, John comes, and then I come, and neither of us satisfy you. You want John to play the flute for you, but he, he, he won't behave like that. And then you decide you want me to sing a dirge for you. Well, and, and we won't. We can't satisfy you. John's out in the desert in camel hair eating locusts. He's preaching fire and judgment and you don't like that. And then Jesus comes along and he eats and drinks with sinners and he preaches healing and blessing and you don't like that either. You call him a glutton and a drunkard. John does it one way. Israel doesn't want to hear. Jesus does it another. They still don't want to hear. Nothing penetrates. Nothing gets through. Always something to criticise, to complain about, an excuse so you don't have to repent. That's Jesus' words for the crowd, but in lots of ways it's a word for Australians today, isn't it? People write off the claims of Jesus for all sorts of reasons. They may like his teaching about bringing little children to him and loving your neighbour, but don't dare tell me that what I'm doing is not right. They're not quite so keen on any of his teaching about adultery or lying or judgment or marriage. They won't let Jesus judge them. They insist that they should be standing in the position to judge Jesus. They like Christmas. They like the baby Jesus, but they're not so keen on the risen, resurrected Jesus, are they? It's the same attitude in Jesus' time. Uh, Verse 20 to 24, Jesus identifies the towns he's been travelling through, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. He's done so many miracles. It's been such a clear call that he's the Messiah and he's calling them to repent, but they've all been as deaf as posts. He says, verse 21, if the miracles that were performed in you, if I'd done them in Tyre and Sidon in the the Gentile uh, cities they would have repented long ago. 
Verse 23, even Sodom, if I'd done miracles in Sodom, they would have repented and would still be standing. But the cities of Israel are even harder than those Gentiles. And so they're going to face God's judgment. Now, I hope that's not the way it is with you. I hope you don't sit in church month after month, year after year, and have got blocked ears or a cold heart. I hope you hear Jesus' call and you listen to it, that you repent and turn back to him and submit to him and hear him and honour him. But don't do it because you expect an easy life. That's the story of this chapter and the the chapter that came before last week, because it certainly didn't turn out too easy for John. And yet Jesus calls John and his hearers and he calls you and me to hear him. If you've got ears, hear. He calls us to trust him. And he says that we'll be blessed if we don't fall away on account of him. He calls us to stick at it, even if we can't figure out every detail even if we don't see the victory or the payoff, because that's what faith is. It doesn't sound smart in a way, does it? Stick at it even though you can't see any payoff. It's not a very smart way to do it. At a human level, it's not a good career move to to stick at being a Christian, to, to be content. It's not a good financial move normally. It's normally not a good lifestyle move, to be honest. That's why Jesus says in verse 25, uh, he praises God that God's hidden this stuff from the wise and learned, but he's shown it to the simple, which has always been God's way of doing things. Jesus' way doesn't seem smart, it doesn't seem easy, but he finishes the chapter in a wonderful way, doesn't he? It's worth it. Jesus' way is not smart, it's not easy, but it's worth it. He says in verse 28, come to me. If you're labouring, if you're loaded, if you're weary and burdened. And I wonder if he's not especially thinking of John here, stuck up in prison. Come to me, don't give up. In your hardships and your heartaches, turn to the expert, to the one who's been through it all, the compassionate one who offers us rest. Verse 28, Jesus says, no matter what you're carrying, come to me and I'll give you rest. Rest from the load that the Herods of the world put on you. Rest from the load of the Pharisees who load you up with legal expectations. Rest rest from the worry about knowing what tomorrow might bring. Rest from the effort of trying to earn your salvation. Rest from trying to discern God's guidance for what tomorrow, uh, what to do tomorrow. And Jesus says, For I am gentle and humble in heart. And no matter how tough it seems now, no matter if you're in a prison cell, Jesus says, If you come to me, you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus does put a yoke on us, but when we humbly and trustingly accept it, it's a yoke that guides his wisdom, his teaching, his example. Think about a way an oxen is steered 
he, he appreciates it. He doesn't have to make decisions. He just follows where the yoke takes him. That's what Jesus is giving us. Uh, there's a peace in that. There's a rest in that, wherever his yoke leads. And so I, I don't know what you are facing right now, uh, what issue it may be. Maybe like John the Baptist, you're suffering some sort of persecution for being a Christian. But, but don't be surprised if you do. Don't be shocked if your workmates uh, snigger behind your back when you walk into the room. Uh, don't be surprised if your neighbour or your sister walks away when you mention the name of Jesus. Because it's always been that way. It was that way for John. It was that way for Jesus. Don't be surprised, but do persevere, no matter how tough. Listen to Jesus and trust him and come to him, confident that the one who redeemed his people has been through the toughest times for you. He'll be there through the toughest times with you as well. And he promises that when we come to him, he'll give us rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are great comforts in this verse uh, and we wonder uh, how John received the news, uh, Jesus' messages. Uh, we pray for those of us who are going through tough times like John that, uh, that you'll help us to hear Jesus and to trust him and that we might be blessed as we persevere. Uh, we pray that this church would be the means by which you uh, enable us to persevere, that we might help each other and that together we might be blessed. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.